Welcome back to our journey through Scripture. Today we're in the fourth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is where we find ourselves today. So we're taking one book of the Bible per week and we're giving a narrative summary of that book and we're going to then look at a summary passage found in that book. That's what we're doing called Journey Through Scripture. Today's journey, uh, we're found, we find ourselves in the book of Numbers, and so why don't we start with a narrative summary. In a narrative summary, as we've said before, you are coming to the book that you're reading there in the Bible, and you're asking some major questions like, why was this book of the Bible written? Who was it written to? What was the purpose that the author was trying to uh, get across? What message, what major themes are there in this book? And how can we understand more about who this God of the Scripture really is? And what is our place in this story? So as we look at this narrative summary here in uh, Numbers, that's what, th- those are the major questions that we're asking. So first of all, some time clues. You'll remember last week when we looked at the book of Leviticus, everything that we talked about there in the book of Leviticus took place in about a year's worth of time there at the base of Mount Sinai. And in today's book, Numbers, it's a period of about 40 years. Essentially, it's a road trip. And the road trip should have taken around two to four weeks, but it took 40 years And Deuteronomy, as we'll cover next week, the time clue there is, is it's anywhere from a few days to just a few weeks, where Moses is preaching uh, a sermon before Joshua. Joshua will lead God's people into the promised land. The purpose for the book of Numbers is, and by the way, this is going to show two generations of the Exodus community. There's a numbering That's why it's called the book of Numbers. There's a numbering or there's a census. There's a lot going on in the book of Numbers. We see this generational impact of people who are given a choice to take God at his word or the choice to be their own authority. And so there's a sense of warning to the second generation to not rebel as the first generation rebelled. Israel's first generation rebelled against God and failed to take possession of the promised land. They incur God's judgment through wandering and death in the desert. So the purpose of this book of Numbers is it's written to call the second generation of that Exodus community to actually take possession of the land, believe in God's promise and take possession of that land and not rebel as the first generation did. Some key themes, three key themes that, as I read through the book of Numbers this past week, uh, three key themes that I saw, and uh, I invite you, hope you hope you did get a, an opportunity to read through the book of Numbers, uh, but these are the key themes that I noticed, and that of grace, rebellion, and grace. First of all, grace. At the foot of Mount Sinai, they were called into a covenant 
with this creator God who knew them, who knew them by name, and uh, he had called them to be his people, Israel. And so there's a, a numbering of the people there at the base of Mount Sinai. There, there's a numbering. There's a census taken. Uh, there's also a second numbering of the people, the second generation, when they made it to the plains of Moab. And so grace means that they placed God at the center of their camp. God inhabited the tabernacle. You'll remember that we learned there in the book of Leviticus. And now surrounding the tabernacle was this group of Levites, and then the other 11 tribes surrounded the, uh, the tribe of, of Levites. And yet right there in the center of the camp was the tabernacle. That is a beautiful structure to have God at the center of your life. And so a great structure that God would provide shelter, God would protect and guide the Israelites. Now we get to the second major theme, and that is of, of rebellion. Uh, that of rebellion. So um, Numbers presents, uh, even in the face of magnificent gifts of grace, and God is very dramatic in the way that he gives them grace, that even in the midst of God giving them grace, we are able and we are willing to rebel against God's goodness, God's purpose, God's generosity, and even God's love. So whenever they, the Israelites, start uh, on their journey from the base of Mount Sinai towards the promised land, they start complaining. They start grumbling. They're grumbling against Moses, even Moses' brother and Moses' sister, question whether Moses is even God's chosen leader or not. And they also rebel against God's purpose. They rebel against God's power. They even question God's goodness. So plagues break out, leprosy breaks out, and what resulted was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, there in the desert. And so that moral struggle, that moral struggle that I just explained is our struggle. That moral struggle that I just explained was uh, what the the rest of the redemptive story in the entire Bible is going to be about. The submission of my heart to God who owns me and who calls me to himself. You'd think that after such a dramatic outpouring of God's grace, the Israelites wouldn't rebel or that we wouldn't rebel. And so there's that journey for the Israelites, leaving the the base of Mount Sinai, headed towards the promised land. They're at the plains of Moab, which should have taken anywhere from two to four weeks. And 40 years later, whenever they had gone through this wilderness, Moses sends 12 spies to check out the promised land. He, uh, he sends ten spies and uh, twelve. He sends twelve spies, and ten of them come back and say that we can't do it. There's no way that we can uh, take this land. And there are two spies, however, Joshua and Caleb, that say God will be true to His word, and God will be our protector and will be our God. But Israel, in their rebellion, they side with the ten spies. 
and they decide to kill Moses, they decide to kill Aaron, and go back to Egypt. And so God decides, you know what, okay, I'll give you what you want, or what you think you want. You're not going to enter the promised land, uh, but God has already rescued this nation from Egypt, you'll remember. And so instead of allowing this group to take their children back into slavery, God tells them that they will die in the wilderness, and their children will have the choice of inhabiting the promised land. So Moses disobeys and can't enter the promised land. God tells Moses to speak to the rock for water, and Moses ends up striking the rock twice for water. And it looked as if it was Moses' power that was bringing water from the rock. And that was sort of the issue, the major lesson being taught to the Israelites is power is not in the stick, power is in God's voice. That's where God's provision comes from. And so basically towards Moses, God was saying in a sense that if, if you're going to resort, Moses, if you're going to resort to believing that power is in this stick and that's how you're going to lead, I'm not going to let you lead my people into the promised land. The last theme is that of grace. Uh, Joshua and Caleb will get to enter into the promised land. God allows humans to make bad decisions and even spares future generations so that they can make their own decisions. Are they going to trust God and follow God or are they going to rely in their own power and their own strength and their own authority? And in the middle of their rebellion, you see again the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people can't provide for themselves so God sends down manna from heaven. God, uh, God's people didn't like the manna in the book of Numbers uh, there in the wilderness. They didn't like manna, uh, and they, it says that they hungered for things that they ate in slavery back in Egypt. And then in the New Testament, in John chapter 6, Jesus boldly proclaims that he is the manna from heaven. That provision of manna is a finger-pointing to the bread of life that would come to satisfy our hearts. So Moses takes a new census of the nation of Israel, and so there's a second numbering there. And this is the generation that has a, has a decision presented to them. Um, will they enter the promised land? And so that's what we'll cover next week in the book of Deuteronomy, and even the week after that in the book of Joshua. So meanwhile, in this story, uh, Israel's enemies hire this prophet named Balaam. And you've probably heard of Balaam, and if you don't remember Balaam, perhaps you remember his donkey, who also has a few, few lines, who speaks a few lines in the book of Numbers. And Balaam is a prophet for hire to curse Israel. And Balaam pronounces seven curses on Israel, but it's God's grace protecting Israel from these curses. And God allows Balaam to only pronounce blessing on Israel. So even though Israel has been unfaithful, God continues to be faithful and bring blessing upon Israel. God is finding unique and creative ways to his own promises, even when the people are unfaithful to the promises of God. So here's how the book of 
Numbers relates to us. We said grace, rebellion, and grace are the themes, and that those are the themes of our life, our lives, right there. That uh, this is your story. That is my personal story. We are those people. In uh, the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, I invite you to go read that. And Paul is mentioning there that the events in Exodus and the events in Numbers were written down for us. They were written down for us, modern readers. They were written down for the first century, but also for us, modern day readers. So the book of Numbers is a Christian book written to teach Christians about the Christian life. So there's this motif that each new generation, this is how it relates to us, each new generation is going to, this, is going to decide, are you going to obey God? Are you going to be a part of God's story, moving forward and embracing God's covenant? Or are you going to disobey and choose your own way. And so the book of Numbers also relates to us because instead of letting the story end in rebellion, God continues to move the story forward very creatively and beautifully to pronounce his blessing and his benediction over us. So there's our narrative summary. And now we're going to look at a sample passage. Our sample passage today is taken from Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. Now, the key word here is benediction. This passage is going to be very recognizable for several of you. Several of you uh, that have been in a worship service have heard this blessing that's given. Uh, You you know what I'm talking about, or perhaps you do, that uh, the minister usually at the end of the worship service will lift his hands, or or the minister, she'll lift her hands and will pronounce this blessing over the people. Well, this most famous blessing uh, is taken from the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. Let me read this blessing, and you can find it in the QR code there, or you can just open up your Bible to the fourth book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. Well, three main points I want to draw out from this benediction today. Number one is, what does God's benediction mean? And the second point is, do we still get God's benediction when we fail God? And the third main point is, how does God's benediction actually change us? Well, the first question here is, what does God's benediction mean? Well, maybe you have been in a Zoom meeting this week, like myself, sitting in uh, on a board meeting of some sort, 
And there, uh, at the end of the board meeting that you were on, there on Zoom, someone makes a motion that we adjourn this meeting, and someone seconds that. And so, is that what a benediction is? <laughs> is that what it is? Is just sort of an end to a meeting? Is a benediction just that boring part where the minister lifts up their hands and pronounces a blessing? Meanwhile, people are just grabbing their purses and backpacks as a way to leave the worship service. No, that's not what a benediction is. Benediction is not uh, just a bunch of positive words from some charismatic leader trying to get you so excited and at the end of the worship gathering says, now go and do it. You can do it. That's not what a benediction is. It's not just positive, motivational words. Look in verses 22 through 27 again with me that a benediction is a blessing from the Lord. This Aaronic blessing. Not ironic, but Aaronic. You know, Moses and Aaron. This Aaronic blessing was said at the end of every worship service there in uh, the tabernacle. Every worship service of Israel for them. There was this blessing that was to be given this, this is how you would leave the worship service. That God's special blessing was announced over you. And you were, you were to receive it. It would empower you that day and that week. You would live off of those words. You would live out of that blessing. So the Latin root word bene means good. And the Latin root word diction means word. So benediction means good word. It's a good word. It's a blessing. Now think back when God created the heavens and the earth there in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. Six times there in the book of Genesis, it says that God saw that what he had created was good and he blessed it. God gave a benediction over it. He, he blessed what he had just created. God was delighting in what he had made. That's what a benediction is. That's what God's blessing is, is God is delighting in something. So in biblical times, when a father was about to die, he would gather all of his children and he would bless them. He would pronounce a blessing over them. And the father isn't just wishing that good would be upon those children, but he's bestowing upon them his entire estate. He's transferring something to them. So when God says, I bless you, God is saying, I delight in you. I'm transferring something to you. God says, everything that I have is yours. See, and here's, 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 the, here's the good news, is that we can't bless ourselves. You, you can't just say to yourself, oh, you, Troy, you are just so blessed today. I bless you. I bless you. you, you can't, we can't bless ourselves. And the contemporary culture around us says, all that matters is what you think about yourself, or all that matters is what others think about you. We'll take that first one there. All that matters is what you think of yourself. 
we want to say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm just fine. And we know that's a crock. <laughs> we know that we deeply care what others think about us. And so the solution for us is we need the blessing of God. It's not that we just need the blessing from ourselves or we just need the blessing from someone else. You need the blessing of God. Verse 24 here in our passage says, the Lord bless you and keep you. God intends to keep you even if you feel like throwing yourself away sometimes. The Lord bless you and keep you. Or contemporary culture may try to tell us that all that matters is what others think about you. And that leaves us going around desperately needing people to say to us that we matter. But then we need to remember, don't look too needy. Don't look too desperate as you're needing someone to tell you that you matter. And in our sin, that's what makes us exploit other people. We end up exploiting other people because we're so desperate to have them tell us that we matter. Or for this same reason, perhaps you've been exploited by someone. And the solution is that you need the blessing of God. That gives you a sense of identity, a sense of confidence, so, so that you know, you know who you are, so that you're not that needy person. That what you get from other people is just icing on the cake. Verse 24, once again, says, The Lord bless you and keep you. That God intends to keep you even if others don't want you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Here's another benediction in the New Testament that sounds similar to this one, and I want you to receive this benediction, this blessing from God. It's found in the book of Jude. Jude, verses 24 and 25 says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. That's what the blessing, that's what the benediction of God means. The second question here is, do we still get God's benediction when we fail? See, Numbers is this book that even in the face of magnificent gifts of grace, the people of God rebel against God. And it's somewhat normal for us to read the book of Numbers and think, how ridiculous, how stupid these people must be. What dumb decisions they're making. Look at these people. And so that moral struggle of receiving grace and then rebelling against God. That moral struggle is what, the, is what the rest of the redemptive story of the Bible is really all about. That submission of my heart to God who owns me and calls me to himself. Verse 25 says, The Lord make his face to shine upon you 
The face of God is his relational presence. Think about being in a room, and right now it's almost hard to think about being in a room with others because we're all uh, quarantining right now, and if we are in a room with others, we're doing it uh, via distance, masked up, wearing all of our masks, but think about being in that room with about 10 or so others present, and you're there with all of them, but typically your face is turned towards one person when you're in a conversation with that person. God's saying this blessing, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. That word shine, that his, his face is literally smiling upon you. There's an intimate personal relationship with God. I mean, do you imagine God smiling at you? That's the good news here in the book of Numbers through this benediction that's being given here is that God is, God's face is turning towards you and smiling at you. Now imagine what Moses must have felt. Let's bring this back to the context there. And I want to go all the way back to uh, Moses because at the end of the worship service there in the tabernacle, when the high priest was to lift up his hands towards the people and to say, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Don't you know that Moses would have been astounded in hearing that? Because Moses would have remembered back in the book of Exodus. Moses would have remembered saying to God, let me see you, God. And God said, no one can look at my face and live. Why not? Why not? And that is because though God is present everywhere, uh, we have lost God's face. We've lost that intimacy. Back in the Garden of Eden, we had the face of God before sin entered the world. There was that intimacy, that shalom, that peace with God and with one another and with creation. But when sin entered the world, we lost not the presence of God, but we lost the face of God. We lost that close, loving relationship with God. And God is essentially saying that my holiness and my glory is incompatible with sin. I can't dwell with sin. Just like fire, fire and water can't dwell together. You get either one or the other. And so Moses must have been thinking, how is this possible that the priest is saying this blessing from God, the Lord make his face to shine upon you? To see God's face, how is this possible? And that's because you've got to see the second part of verse 25. Look at verse 25 again. It says, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Moses must have been thinking, God is going to do something with this sin. God is going to be gracious in some way to deal with this sin. And the benediction here in tabernacle worship service was never at the beginning of the service. It was always at the end of the service. That's so significant. 
It was so significant because during the tabernacle worship service, you had the offering, you had the, the sacrifices, you had the atonement for sin. And because you had to have that, and there was some indication that God was going to take care of our sin. And then after that atonement, that's when the benediction was given. That's why and how God's face can turn towards you and be gracious towards you. And we know from the book of Hebrews, as we discussed last week, Jesus atones for our sin by offering a perfect sacrifice. That is, he offers himself. And then jumping back into the New Testament, John chapter 1, it says that Jesus tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. The gospel is a benediction. The gospel is good news that Jesus graciously says to us, upon me be the curse for your sins. That the curse we deserve for our sinfulness was placed on Christ. And the blessing that rightly belonged to Jesus, he gives us that blessing in calling us children. Even in John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying to the Father, the very night that Jesus would be betrayed and arrested and eventually would hang on a cross and die for our sins, that very night where he's praying in John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father, give them, give them the glory, that is my disciples, my followers, give them the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. What he's praying there is that God can turn his face toward you if you are in Christ. If you are believing in Christ, the Father says to you, you are my beloved child. I delight in you. I can turn my face toward you and be gracious towards you through Christ. See, blessing is not God just wishing good on you, fingers crossed. I hope you have a good life, fingers crossed. Or, oh, God bless you. I hope it works out okay for you. Blessing is that Jesus is going to pay the price for you. Jesus is going to pay the price for you. Look in verse 26 of this blessing. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. This word peace means shalom. It's the absolute fulfillment of your desires. That everything that you've ever desired and longed for and truly have been hungry for is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus will ultimately meet your needs and what you hunger for and what you thirst for. Here's another benediction in the New Testament that sounds similar to this benediction. Receive this benediction. Receive this blessing from God. It's in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And the next question we want to take up here is, how does God's benediction change us? Does God's blessing just make you feel better? 
Is that what this is? That I'm just supposed to feel better? Is that how we're changed? No, no, it's, it, it, it may include that, and a lot of times it does include that. In fact, right now as you're listening to this benediction, you, you probably are feeling relieved. You probably are feeling God's peace. But the blessing of God goes so much deeper than just that feeling, and that is because the blessing of God names us. He names us. Look at verse 27. So they will put my name on the Israelites. I will bless them. God is putting his name upon you when he gives you this benediction. When God blesses you, he's putting his name upon you. You belong to him. That's how it changes you. Your identity is changed forever. You know, in Christian baptism, we are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's not just some general, generalized making you feel better sort of change that you go through whenever you get baptized or whenever you receive God's blessing, but it's that His name is upon you. You may be feeling like a nobody whenever you're listening to this or whenever you wake up tomorrow morning. You may feel like a nobody, and that is exactly when this blessing of God is so relevant to you and to me. That this God who knows you by name and bestows his name upon you is going to turn his face towards you and be gracious towards you and give you his peace. Imagine being an orphan. Imagine being an orphan and, 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 and finally getting adopted. And finally, you, you get an identity. You, you get a last name. There's, there's this sense of confidence. There, there's this solidarity of a family that you now have. There's this support and accountability that you represent this family. And there's also intimacy that you experience of being adopted. That's because God is not your boss. God doesn't relate to you like a boss. He relates to you like a father who's adopted you. Here's another benediction in the New Testament that sounds so similar to, to, to this. Receive this benediction, this blessing from God. Actually, it's in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. The Old Testament, Psalm chapter 29, verse 11. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So how does God's benediction change us? You'll know. You'll know that you're being changed by God's benediction whenever you're able to say, we are those people. We are those people. Those same people in the Old Testament that, that receive God's grace, they receive that new identity that whenever God comes into a covenant with them and God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then we see those same people rebel against God. You'll know, you'll know that the benediction and God's blessing is changing you whenever you're able to finally confess and say, I am one of those people. 
that rebel against God. Even though God's been so gracious to me, I continue to rebel. We are like those people in the wilderness. Uh, And that means that sometimes that that same manna that did not satisfy them there in the wilderness, that the bread of Jesus doesn't satisfy me sometimes. It doesn't satisfy you sometimes. And that we're still susceptible to setting our desires on other bread to fulfill us. The bread of human success or the bread of human comfort, etc., etc. That we'd rather have it our own way than to follow God's way and God's story. Or we'd rather have slavery than the freedom that Jesus can give us. And what we actually hunger, hunger for will only be found in the bread of life, who is Jesus. In conclusion, in conclusion here, we need this benediction. I don't mean just today. I don't, I don't mean just today. We need this benediction over our life. You know, there, there's recommendation just like in terms of how long we should be washing our hands these days and, and maybe hymn a song while, while you wash your hands to remind you how long to wash your hands. What if you memorized, what if you memorized these verses right here that we've looked at today? And as you wash your hands, you recite this blessing from God to you. Imagine that. Imagine how your mindset would change and how you think about yourself how you think about God, how you think about others and the world that you and I live in. I'm gonna recite this blessing right now out loud. And as I do so, I I, I just wanna invite you to be still. Yeah, right now, I want you to just stop what you're doing. I want you to be still. I want you to reflect and I want you to receive this blessing. Maybe your, maybe your hands are, are reached towards heaven as, as God gives you this blessing. Maybe you just bow down right now, right where you are. Hear this blessing, receive this blessing by faith. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Let's pray right now together. Father God, we receive this benediction. We receive this blessing. Let it be the very summary of our life. Let us know with certainty that that you intend to bless us and keep us. Thank you for making your face shine upon us. Thank you for being gracious to us through the person and work of Christ. Let us live our lives as an overflow of being blessed by you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Amen.